Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. We're going to conclude this series on waking the sleeping giant. The giant, of course, being the church. And and for those of you who have not been here, you know, one or more of the last three weeks, you know, or the, the series is all about allowing God to awaken in us certain things, so that we will serve Him and others with a, a greater sense of joy, a greater sense of enthusiasm, anticipation, and fulfillment. And uh, week one, we we talked about. God uh, awakening our call to serve. And the, um, the object lesson that we used uh, was this basket, because we talked about how our call is um, God awakening in us a, a, a um, sacrificial mentality that's characterized by interdependence. And so what happens then is if each one of these is, is us, when we uh, humble ourselves and allow ourselves to be shaped and, and molded and stuff, and then, then, and then we, we allow ourselves to be built together into something together, then we become something interdependent. We become something stronger. And so that was all about awakening us our call to serve. The second week, we, we talked about awakening our, our shape. And um, the shape was, you know, using the way in which God has gifted us and made us to, to serve him and others. And so that means our, the spiritual gifts he's given us, the heart or the passion he's given us, our abilities, our personality, our, our experiences. And the, the um, object lesson we used for that was this broom. And uh, if you'll recall, we talked about how the broom handle represents God, our Father, who loves us and wants to use us for his purposes, this this uh, silver um, wire that goes around all the grasses and holds the grasses together with the blue royal band here represents Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who holds us together and, and uh, uh, who, who um, wants to use us for his purposes as well. And then the, the cord represents the Holy Spirit who gives us gifts, spiritual gifts, and uh, gives us the empowerment to serve and holds us all together that way and makes sure that we are interdependent. And then each one of these grasses represents you and me. And when we're all put together and powered by the Holy Spirit, it's unbelievable what we can do. And then last week, we talked about God awakening in us our motivation to serve. And so that was serving God out of a love for Him and a love for others. And this was this agape love, this love that comes from God, which is unconditional. And uh, one of the symbols that we talked about when we talked about this love was a serving towel, the kind of towel that, that Jesus would have used when he washed his disciples' feet and then said, you know, the example that I've just shown for you, I now pass on to you, do that to others kind of thing. And so we talked about how we as Christians belong to the order of the towel, that this is our flag, right? But the object lesson that we used was was these nails, and, and we talked about how, you know, you know what, what does love look like when we're serving uh, according to the way in which um, we, we love God and love others? Well, we said, first of all, when we're not serving out of love, we look like these individual nails, and we just make a, a loud, empty sound, but when we are, are serving out of a love for God and a love for others, when that's our motivation... Now watch, this time it won't work. And, and what it means is there's not enough love among us. I'll just, that, that's just, you know, I'm going with that story. Um, but anyway, when we're serving out of love, 
then and and with with us balanced on on you know on Christ who is our head. Uh, there we go. See, there was something wrong with you guys. Um, <laughs> you notice how it's easy for me to blame somebody else, right, for my own uh, mistakes here. So obviously, I should learn a lesson about loving uh, myself. Now, you guys, you shouldn't be laughing. That's not good. I'm going to try it once more. And those of you who weren't here last week, you'll have to trust me. It does work. And I'll show you after the service. There we go. (laughs) You guys are easily impressed. Um, So that's what we did this last week, and, and we talked about how God wants to awaken in us our, our, our love to serve others, and that's our motivation. And, and this week, we want to um, look at two other things that God wants to awaken in us. And to introduce that, those two things to you, I want to tell you a story. It takes place somewhere in, in the mountains of what was then known as Burma, and is today Myanmar. And, and there lived a Wa tribe. And they were actually headhunters. They were about 100,000 strong. And once a year during planting season, they, they felt compelled by, by bloodthirsty gnats. Now, that was their term for evil spirit, bloodthirsty gnats. They felt compelled by these evil spirits to plant human severed heads in their fields along with their seeds to ensure a good crop. I know fertilizer would have worked much better, but that's what they were going with, right? And so they would go on these headhunting uh, excursions once a year attacking neighboring tribes. Anyway, to go on, uh, there was this benign influence that began to work within the folk religion of the people. And so from time to time, Prophets, and catch this, prophets who called themselves prophets of the true God, and, and their name for the true God was Saya, or Saya, they arose to condemn this headhunting and this appeasement of the evil spirits. And during the 1880s, one of these prophets, a prophet by the name of Puchan, he persuaded several thousand uh, tribesmen to abandon this abhorrent practice, and here's why. He said, because the true God is about to send a long-awaited white brother with a copy of a lost book. Now, one morning, Puchan saddled a pony. He called some of his disciples together, and he said, I want you to follow that pony. Because Sai, the true God, told me last night that the white brother has finally come near. And the true God is going to cause this pony to lead you to him. Well, the pony started walking and the disciples followed. And instead of stopping at the first watering hole it came to, that pony led the disciples over approximately 200 miles of mountainous trails and down into the city of Kengtung. And there it turned into a gate of a missions compound 
and headed straight for the well. Now the Wa tribesmen heard uh, sounds coming from inside the well. And so they went to look down, and instead of seeing water, they saw two clear blue eyes looking up at them, bearing a friendly, bearded, white face. And William Marcus Young said, may I help you, as he climbed out of the well, which, of course, he was still in the process of digging. They asked him, have you brought a book of God with you? He nodded that he had. Overcome with emotion, these Wa men fell at his feet and they blurted out the message from Puchan. And then they added, they said, this pony, this pony is saddled especially for you and our people are all waiting. Fetch the book. We've got to be on our way. The only problem was is that the missionary was unable to go for this very good reason. Because at that very time, Thousands of people from another tribe were visiting the compound, arriving in groups on almost a daily basis, and so he just wasn't able to spare the time at that moment. But what happened was this. Marcus and others brought the message of Christ to those Wa men who had come and showed up at their compound. They trained them and then sent them back to their own people. And eventually, thousands of Wa men and women became Christians without ever seeing William Marcus Young, the missionary. That story is taken from a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. If you want to see it, I have it in my briefcase. You can, look at, you can ask me for it afterwards. It's by Don Richardson. You can also Google this story. You can actually see a picture of Puchan as well. Anyway, that story helps us illustrate our, our topic for today because we, we want to consider how God might want to awaken in us um, our purpose for serving and, and also how he might want to awaken us the empowerment that he desires to give us as we serve. And as we look at these two things that God wants to awaken in us, we're going to answer these two questions. Why do we serve? And, and what kind of empowerment is available to us so that we might serve, you know, God in an impactful and in a powerful, mighty way? So let's tackle the first question. Why, why, why do we serve? What grand purpose are we to be a part of as followers of Jesus Christ? You know, what passion is to drive us? Well, I, I think the Bible is you know, exceptionally clear on this point. Our reason, our, our purpose, our passion for serving is actually twofold. It's to, to glorify God and to edify others. Now, sometimes we've got words like that and we say, so what does that kind of stuff actually mean? You know, what do those two phrases mean? To edify God or to glorify God and edify others. Now stay with me and, and, and we'll get there. Here's some examples from the Bible that that, that call on us to, to glorify God as we serve. This first one comes from 1 Corinthians 10. It says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Then this next one from 1 Peter 4 says, if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised or glorified through Jesus Christ. So both passages clearly call us to serve others with the purpose of bringing glory to God. But what does that mean? 
Well, it actually means with the purpose of elevating him in the sight of others. That's what it means to bring glory to God. To, to elevate him in the sight of others and in our own eyes. But what about this other aspect of our purpose of serving? You know, this thing to, to edify others. I want to draw your attention to one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. There was a time when I was disillusioned with, with the pastoring. And, and I thought, you know what, I feel like I'm just... Uh, and just don't, don't take this the wrong way, but I felt like, I was so down that I felt like I was a glorified babysitter in church. That's what I felt I was. I just didn't feel like I was doing what God had called me to do. And, and, and when I really got a hold of this passage right here, I realized this is a pastor's, this is a leader's job description. We read, it was he, God, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service. So that, and that's another way of saying, for the purpose of, so that the body of Christ may be built up or strengthened or edified, as it says in the King James Version, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You see, in everything we do, in everything we say, in everything we are, our purpose for serving ultimately is to glorify God and to edify others. Or another way of saying the same thing is this. Our purpose in serving is to elevate God in the eyes of others and to strengthen and build one another and others up in the faith. Now, as you're reflecting on that, let me tell you another story of William Marcus Young while he was in Burma. This story actually takes place earlier than the first one I told you, and it involves the Lehu tribe. Now, like the Wa people, the Lehu mountain tribe also had prophets of the one true God, but their name for the one true God was Gisha. These prophets told their people that when the right time came, Gisha was going to uh, himself send to them a white brother with a white book containing the white laws of Gisha. Now apparently, and catch this, these were words that had been lost by their forefathers long ago. So they had had it at one time, but no longer did. And then the prophet said this, that white brother is going to bring the lost book to our homes. Well, one day, William Marcus Young is out in the marketplace of Kengtung. But he's speaking to a group of people called the Shan people, most of whom were Buddhists. And, and he's reading from the Ten Commandments. And then holding his Bible aloft like this, and the sun gleaming on its white pages, he begins to teach about the laws of the true God. And as he's teaching, he notices these strangely clothed men that are gravitating toward him out of the throng in the marketplace. They were from the Lehu tribe. And they had chosen this particular day to descend from the mountains and trade their wares in the market. And soon, they are completely surrounding the missionary. 
And they're staring incredibly, incredulously at, at his white face. They're looking at the white interior of this book in his hand. And they're listening to his description of the laws of God contained in the white pages of this book. And, and then, in, in, a, in, a, in an outburst of powerful emotion, they, they plead with him to follow him into the mountains. To follow them into the mountains. In fact, they, they practically kidnapped him. And here's what they said. They said, we as a people have been waiting for you for centuries. We have, we have even built meeting houses in preparation for this. They had built churches in preparation for this, right? And so in some of our villages, there are meeting houses in readiness for your coming. And then some of the men also showed him the bra some bracelets of coarse rope that were, were dangling from their wrists like manacles. And they said, we, we've worn these ropes since forever. And they symbolize our bondage to evil spirits. And you alone, as the messenger of Gisha, are the one who can cut these manacles from our wrists. But only after you have brought the lost book of Gisha to our homes. Now, guess what? This was the tribe that was visiting the compound in Kengtung on a daily basis when those Wa tribesmen followed the pony to its final destination. Now, not only does the story I just told illustrate what can happen when we allow God to awaken in us his purpose for serving, which is to glorify him and to edify others, it also illustrates what happens when we allow God to empower us? Which leads us to the second question that we want to consider this morning. What kind of empowerment is available to us as we serve God? Now, I'll introduce this, this final aspect of this series by, by telling you another football story from my coaching days. Okay? I, I apologize to those of you who hate football. Okay? But you're just going to have to go with me on this one. But it was back in Saskatchewan when I was coaching 12 to 15-year-olds in what is the greatest sport ever invented. Okay? Do I hear an amen from anybody? <laughs> no, you don't have to amen that. I'm just, okay, thank you. Thank you. Anyway, one year, I, I had this 12-year-old this kid who, was, who weighed in at 150 pounds. And he tried out for the team. Now, not only did he have the size... He also had a football name. It was Osarchuk, right? You, you can't say that name, Osarchuk. You can't say that. It's Osarchuk, right? That's the way that name sounds, right? Now, I could, I could tell that he had the wherewithal with within himself. He had the strength. He had the power to play against those 15-year-olds and hold his own. Here was the problem. He didn't know his own strength. And so I, I just knew that I was going to have to figure out something, you know, for him to, so that he would change the way in which he was viewing himself. Because he was looking at those 15-year-olds as being stronger than he was, when he was just as strong as they were. So I knew I had to do something that would kind of shock him out of his inability to use his power, the strength he didn't even know he had, that was available to him. So at one practice, when we were short a few bodies... Um, I played on the offensive line during scrimmage without equipment. 
And I happened to be playing opposite Osarchuk, who was on the defensive line. So it meant that I was going to have to block him and keep him away from whoever was carrying the football. So I, I, you know, the first play, I got down into my stance, right? Hey, I can still do this. I, I think I can take somebody on. You know, anybody smaller than Dave, I can go, I can go for. But Dave, you may have to help me up. No, <laughs> no I'm kidding. But anyway, first play, right? I, I get up, and, I, and I'm hitting, and Osarchuk's not doing anything, right? Just not really coming at me at all. So I feel okay, next play, I got down again, and this time I came up, and I just hit him hard. I knocked him flat on his can, and, and I looked down at him, and I said, Osarchuk, you're a wimp. I smiled at him, right, when I said it, uh, and he just looks at me, kind of grins, right, gets up. So, and I, I hit him again. He's still, he's not getting, he's not getting. I hit him I hit him a fourth time, and um, so by, by now, I'm kind of temporarily giving up, right? And so I just nonchalantly get into a stance like this, right? Just expecting to stand up and just, you know, like that kind of thing. And I get up, and before I can even react, bang, I'm flat on my back, right? Totally flat on my back. And here's Osarchuk, big helmet, looking down on me, big grin on his face, and he says, who's the wimp now, coach? <laughs> right? And I, I just smiled back up at him, right? Because I knew he got it, right? And uh, I, I just, <laughs> from that moment on, he just began to change. And by the next year, he was my main running back, and, and he was incredible. He was virtually unstoppable. He was the kind of football player that every coach dreams about. Because the more you gave him the football, the stronger he became, the better a running back he was. In fact, I remember one time, we're, we're just getting ready for the kickoff of the game, and I can hear somebody, you know, saying, you know, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball. And I'm looking around, and I can't see anybody who's saying it. All of a sudden, I look down, and here's Osarchuk. And every time he's doing a push-up, he says, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball. So I quickly called my quarterback over, and I said, first play, give him the ball, Okay. And because that's what you needed to do. You needed to get him in the game right away, and he would just take off from there. Because here's the thing about him. He actually had the ability, even though he was a big player, he had the ability to make players miss him. But instead, he would purposely find somebody to run over. That's the kind of player he was. He, th that's how much he loved hitting. I, I remember one time he had this easy cakewalk into the end zone. If he would just angle for the end zone, but instead he kind of stopped, turned, and hit somebody and then walked into the end zone. And I thought, that's my kind of football player. But I reamed him out when he came back from the, you know, from the touch from the end zone because he could have you know, fumbled the ball or something, right? Unnecessary chance, that kind of thing. We see it all began with, with trying to find a way to empower him to help him recognize the power that he had at his disposal, the power he didn't even know he had, the power he wasn't using. And here's my point. You see, I, I think just like Osarchuk, I, I believe today many Christians are unaware of or unwilling to allow the power of God, the empowerment of God's Spirit in our lives. And when we do that, we, we actually quench the power of God because we're actually settling for something less than God wants to give us. Uh, Chuck Swindle, in his book, Improving Your Serve, he quotes this man by the name of Wilbur Reese, 
who kind of talks about the same thing that I'm talking about here. Now, now keep in mind, his, man, his words were meant to be this sarcastic response to people who settle for less than what God wants to give them through his spirit. And so he says, you know, here's what many people are thinking. When God want to give, wants to give them so much more, here's what they're thinking. He says, they're saying, I, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or, or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I, I, I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Oh, man, we, we, you know, we just need to allow the presence of God to envelop us. We need to immerse ourselves in him, just allowing him to empower us if we want to live out our Christian lives with a sense of, of victory. And that's what the Bible calls us to. For example, once again in, in 1 Peter 4, we read these words. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised or glorified. In essence, to, to try and, and serve God without his power, it's, it's like spitting in the wind. It's like kind of trying to walk against hurricane forced winds it's like it's like filling a, a bottomless pit one pebble at a time and that's why it's so important for us to not only to acknowledge that we need God's strength in serving others but that we're also willingly embracing and accepting it that we're allowing his power to completely envelop us and that only happens if we allow God's spirit to to Fill us with himself. I mean, in Acts 1.8, we read these words, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And then in, in 2 Timothy 1, we read, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power. You see, whatever our shape is, whatever our giftedness, whatever our abilities, it's all a moot point unless we are allowing God to empower us with his spirit. And then don't forget, God also wants to use our weaknesses to demonstrate His power. And I've shared before how I've experienced that in my own life on countless occasions. Now, some of you might be asking, well, how do we receive the power of God's Spirit? How do we experience that power of the Holy Spirit? I just want to point out two things that are involved in that. And the first is this, understand that from the moment that the Spirit of God takes up residency in our lives, which is from the moment that we become a Christ follower. From that moment on, the, the more that we can get self out of the way and allow God's Spirit to have His way in us, to fill us with His purposes, the more His power will be demonstrated through us. That's a reoccurring theme throughout the entire Bible. The more we get self out of the way and allow God's Spirit to have His way, the more His power will be demonstrated in and through us. That's the first thing. Secondly, prayer is also a means that God, that God employs to experiencing His power, both in our lives and in the life of our church as a whole. I mean, quite simply, God chooses to work through our prayers 
And often, he's just waiting for us to ask him to unleash his power in our lives. For instance, in James 5, we're told that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. See, God is a demonstrate, God has chosen to demonstrate um, his power through the prayers of his people, from his followers, who are filled with his spirit. And that's why everything we do needs to be saturated with prayer. We need to have the mentality that says, pray first, act second. And I'm not just talking about, you know, token prayers, but heartfelt going to the mat kind of prayer. Because it's through our prayers that God will demonstrate his miraculous power and presence. And, And what's so amazing is that often God is going ahead of us ready to demonstrate and already demonstrating his power and presence long before we get there, just like those two stories of the Wa and the Lehu people illustrate. I guess what I'm saying is this. When it comes to the presence and the power of God in our lives, you know, we need to be so in touch with the heart of God that, that we allow him free reign in our lives. You see, God, God wants to empower us, but, but we need to have a heart that's willing to be immersed in his presence and to be filled with his presence. And, and what I want to do is I, I want to illustrate this through a couple of object lessons today. You know, what the presence and the, and the power of God is going to look like in our lives and in our church if we allow him to take over. So take this sponge, for instance. You know, if you were to come to the front here and look at it, you would see that it's completely dry out of the water, it's, it's even a bit crusty, right? But, but when I place it on the water, in the water, it just a little bit of it is starting to get soaked up there, right? So just slowly getting soaked up. But what God wants to do with us is God wants us to say, I, I want to be filled with your presence. And so we need to allow God to bend us and mold us the way he wants, just like he's doing, just like I'm doing with this. Because what God really wants is he wants us to be filled to overflowing so that we look like this. Right? That's what God is really looking for. That's what he wants to do in us. He doesn't want us to sit on the water of his presence. He wants us to be immersed in it. That's how God's spirit needs to interact with us. This is how God's presence and power is to be evident in our lives. Here's the second object lesson. I want you to just picture a river like that over there. Just a river flowing along. And uh, keep in mind, that river represents God's presence and His power. And we need to be the kind of followers of Jesus who are willing to walk into the river of God's presence. Beyond ankle depth beyond knee depth, you know, beyond our waist, daring to walk in over our head, you know, allowing God, you know, just shedding our fear, our crustiness, our self-confidence in favor of God's presence and his power, and then let him take us wherever he wants to take us. You know, I'm convinced, like others say, that in order to reach the world today, especially in the Western world, we will, not be doing, we will not be doing it so much through logic and reasoning, as important as that might be, but we will be 
uh, allowing God to demonstrate his power through us. I believe that today, to reach people for Christ, there's going to be a, journey, a, a, a joining together of God's truth with his power in the days to come, if we will allow it to happen. I mean, it's, it's happening elsewhere in the world, so why shouldn't it happen here? You see, we need to reach our community. We need to engage our community with both a truth and a power encounter. Because you know what? People want to know if what we've got is really real. And I think just reasoning with them may not cut it. And with that in mind, I, I want to now draw our series to a close. And we're going to do that by looking at four challenging questions. You'll see those questions on, on sheets that are in front of you. And you, you might want to just look at those if you've got, if you've got one close to you. There's going to be four challenging questions. And, then, and I'm going to give you four quotes that go with them. Now, keep this thought in mind. How we answer these questions, both individually and as a church, will determine our future. It'll determine what our future looks like. Here's the first question. It comes from Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. What am I going to give my life for? What does he say about that? He says, what matters not, what matters is not the duration of your life, but the donation of it. Not how long you lived, but how you lived it. And then to encourage us to step out and, and live the life that Christ wants us to live, he says this. He reminds us from the Bible of who God used throughout the centuries. He says Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was abused. Moses stuttered. Gideon was poor, no self-esteem. Rahab was immoral. David had an affair and all kinds of family problems. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was reluctant. Naomi was a widow. John the Baptist was eccentric to say the least. Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered. Martha worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had a number of failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular. Thomas had doubts. Paul had poor health. And Timothy was timid. He says that's quite a variety of misfits. But God used each of them in his service and used them powerfully. And he wants to do that with us as well. If we will move into the river of his presence and his power. So that's the first question and the first quote. Here's the second. What will outlast anything else I do? That comes from Rick Warren's other book, called the purpose-driven church rather than the purpose-driven life. Here's what he says. He says, what you do for God will outlast anything else you do. Kingdom stuff will outlast anything else. That's what you'll be remembered for. You know, loving God and loving others, you know, penetrating our culture with the person message of Christ, engaging the people that we work with, live beside, or, or play with, uh, both through our words and our actions as we love Jesus, live like him, and lead others to him. It's basically the Christian life in a nutshell. Question three. Do I want my church to be a monastery or a movement? In his book, An Unstoppable Force, Daring to Become the Church God Had in Mind, Urban McManus says this. 
He says, the church needs to stop being a monastery and become a movement again. And then he describes the kind of monastery that he's talking about. He says, here's what's happened to us. He says, to get away from the world, we as believers have turned our churches into monasteries. Places that became spiritual havens for us. Focusing on our spiritual life, caring for our spiritual needs and nurturing our spiritual health. Largely at the exclusion of others. He says, in our minds, the church was the one place where an unbelieving world couldn't get at us. We were protected. But then he goes on to say the church was never intended to be that kind of a place, that kind of a monastery. In fact, he goes on to say, God intends that there be no place where we as believers can hide except in his presence. He says, when the church becomes our shelter from a a radically changing world, we fail to turn to God and make him our hiding place and our shelter. And we try to make the church our shelter. But, he says, when the church is a movement, it becomes a refuge for the unbelieving world to come to. And then he says this. He says, when we do that, The church actually becomes a place, and I don't like the word place because the church is not a place. The church is a people, the people of God. So I'm going to use that instead. The church becomes the people of God where the seekers finally find the God they were searching for. The church becomes the hope for the broken and the weary to finally find the healing and the help that they've craved. The church becomes the people of God where the lonely and the outcast are finally embraced and loved in the community of Christ. When the church becomes a movement and not a monastery, she becomes a people of transformation, he says, for the very culture from which we we generally run away from in fear. In other words, folks, we're we're to function a um, hospital, not a retirement center, right? We're supposed to be a triage unit, not a health spa. We're to take the church to the community rather than expect the community to come to us. That's the third question. Here's the fourth and final. Oh, by the way, he doesn't want us to be members who are part of a monastery. He wants us to be missionaries who are part of a movement, right? Here's the fourth question. Do I want to live in the past, keep up with the times I live in, or change time? Change history. He says, the church was intended to be a movement creating moments that change history. That quote comes from uh, Urban McManus again. He goes on to say that what should be uppermost in our minds is not hanging on to the past or keeping up with society, but to set the course of change. He says, yes, change is inevitable today. But keeping up with it is not our final goal. We need to become instead change agents, he says. And here's a quote from him. The first century church didn't keep up with its time. The first century church changed time. It rewrote history. It radically impacted culture. The church was the forerunner, not the runner-up. Out of the church's influence came the greatest art, the greatest music, and the greatest thinkers in Western thought. And so, friends, I I challenge us this evening. And here's the thing. We here at the well 
have everything we need, no matter how small our number is, we have everything we need to see our culture transformed. We do. And his name is the one true God. He's called the beginning and the end, the almighty God, the prince of peace, the everlasting father, the king of kings, the maker and ruler of this universe. This is the one, this is the God who lives inside us and is waiting to empower us so that we might live according to his purposes. And so may we experience the the richness of God and the richness of his blessings as we allow him to awaken in us his purpose and his empowerment. And, And then may we find ourselves just soaring like eagles, like it says in the book of Isaiah. Let's pray.